open up with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, you can also, uh, if you would like, follow along with me in the bulletins, uh, or you can turn in the Blue Bible to page 259 and follow along with me there. It'd be good to have uh, your Bibles open this morning as I'll work pretty closely as we move along through this text, although, quite frankly, there are a lot of places that I'll be in Scripture, but good to have this one open. So, again, just quick reminder of, first of all, the historical context uh, before I read this section of Scripture for us. In chapter 5, we saw David uh, be anointed as the united king over Israel, over Judah and over Israel, and then we saw him take the city of Jerusalem and enter into that city, then known as the city of David, uh, where God established his household there. In chapter 6 that we considered last week, the Ark of God, and here's the full title of the Ark of God, the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim, the Ark is brought into Jerusalem. And what we saw there, the significance of what we saw there, is that God is drawing near to his people. God and his people united together there in the city of Jerusalem. And now we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when you are uh, driving on a long road trip, maybe if you're going across country, there are plenty of times in that uh, trip when all you want to do is make time. Right? You're driving through, no offense to anybody, Kansas, Nebraska, you just want to make time. You want to go as fast as you can and get through them because there's not a lot to see. But there are other times, right, when you're driving along through uh, beautiful places and you want to slow down and you want to look around you a little bit or you want to stop the car and you want to get out and you just want to appreciate the beauty of what you've come across, of what you've run into on your drive. Well, this is that. Second Samuel is that we are going to pump the brakes, we are going to stop the car, and we are going to get out right here because this is one of the most important chapters, not only in Second Samuel, but frankly in all of the Old Testament, and I want us to appreciate all of the beauty that is found here. The passage itself is going to reach back to the very beginnings of the Bible, and it's going to stretch all the way forward with forever promises. Forever promises as we come to the end of this section. It's going to link together the law of God, the Torah, together with the history, together with the writings, together with the prophets. This passage ties all of those things together and is used and linked in all of those other places as well. It is, of course, going to this passage carry us to the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we've already seen the passages that were read for us already point back to this chapter right here and the promises that are made here and it carries us all the way through to the end of scripture as well. So this is what I'm going to read for you now. Six verses before the very last verse in your Bible. Okay, six verses before the last verse we read this. I, Jesus, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. That's how significant this is, that when you get to the end, this is referenced. I am the root and the descendant of David. 
It's a sweet place to be, and it's a sweet and beautiful place, and we are going to spend together as a church, we're actually going to spend together four Sundays on it. Uh, for the next two Sundays, in addition to this one, I'm going to read the exact same text, the text that I'm about to read for us, the first 17 uh, verses of this, and then at the last week, uh, in the end of November, I'll take us through the last section of this as well. Here now, the life and light giving word of the living God. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the, great na like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover declares the Lord to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Lord God in heaven above, you have done it all. You've done it all from beginning to end. All glory and praise and honor to you. This is your word. Your spirit has authored this word. Your son has bought us so that we are yours, so that we are part of the my people that you claim. And we come before you today and we ask you to help us to understand it. Help us to love it. Help us to live it. 
We pray these things in the name of David's son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, we begin then looking at the Davidic covenant by reflecting on one of the most basic human concepts, and I trust that you heard it throughout this passage, the concept of a house, of a home, of a place to dwell, a place to be, hopefully and ideally, a house is a place to be with the ones that you love. Now, I want to give you two verses to think about and kind of frame where we're going to be going today. Two verses from other parts of Scripture that relate to the idea of the house. Two of my favorites. One from Proverbs chapter 24, verse 3. By wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established. By wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established. And the second verse, to frame it in a little bit here. Sorry, that was an unintended a pun on the framing of a house. Uh, Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. It takes wisdom and it takes understanding to build a house. It takes wisdom and understanding on the part of the builders, of the homemakers, to build the house, to make the house a home. But unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. So the Davidic covenant, and I'll explain that phrase, the Davidic covenant, in just a moment. The, Div the Davidic covenant that we're looking at this week and for the next several weeks can be thought of as one home-building project. This is a homemaking project. This is a house-building project that is being described here, and it is going to be one big, glorious house that is built the word house is used with great flexibility in our text this morning, and we'll have a chance to see that as we work our way through. It begins, of course, with David's desire to make a house for God, a house for the ark. And God replies to it, and I'm just summarizing the whole here, God replies to David by saying, in essence, David, check that impulse. Check it. Nathan seems to think that's a good impulse right away. God says, let's, let's check that impulse. Instead, what God says in this text is, no, 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 no. I will make a house for you. You're not making a house for me. I'm making a house for you. Why? Because unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. All right, so house is going to be our central idea today. It comes right out of the text that is before us, and I'll return to it in just a moment, but I need now to set up our text a little bit more before we go into it. So the sermon today is called The Davidic Covenant, A House Established. Okay, the Davidic Covenant, A House Established. That's where we are today. Next week, the sermon will be called The Davidic Covenant, an heir promised, an heir promised. And then the week after that, the sermon will be called The Davidic Covenant, a surety given. Surety, S-U-R-E-T-Y, a surety given. Now allow me now to unpack this phrase that I've already used a couple of times, and obviously as part of the title, this phrase, The Davidic Covenant. 
uh, essentially just a way of saying the covenant that has been made with David. So make David adjectival, and so you have the Davidic covenant. The Bible is structured by covenants. We call it the Old and New Testaments. It would be better called the Old and New Covenants. A covenant is a bond, and to covenant is to bring things together, to bind things together, to unite things together, to unite, for example, two people. Two people who might be friends, as we've seen in Samuel, well, in 1 Samuel anyway, between uh, David and Jonathan, to bring them together in terms of covenant. Or two people who might not be friends, who might in fact be enemies with one another, or at least at one another quite a bit. Think, for example, in Genesis of Jacob and Laban. Those two then finally arrangement given by way of covenant. Or it can be in bringing two people together in marriage, in the marriage covenant. So you bring two people into this union with one another through a covenant. It can also be peoples and it can also be nations. It's always formal. It's not a casual thing. A covenant is never casual in scripture. It's formal. It has promises that are attached to it. It has warnings that are given. It has provisions by which you watch over this covenant and the terms of the covenant in particular. And it oftentimes, as we know, and as I'll point out as we move along, has signs that are attached to it to say, don't forget, here's the sign of this covenant that has been made. But most importantly in the Bible is God's covenant. God's covenant with humanity. Now, in speaking of God's covenant with humanity, you can use the word covenant, as I've been doing thus far, in the singular. You can say God's covenant, and you can talk about God's covenant, or you can use it in the plural as well. You can say covenants. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, looking back over the history of the people of God, the history of Israel in particular, will speak of the covenants plural, of promise, the covenants of promise. Collectively then, God has entered into a covenant with his people. And we won't go into the details of this right now, but we call it the covenant of grace. God has entered into a covenant of grace with his people that has been administered by covenants, okay, by covenants that are made with key individuals throughout history. And it's important that at least we have an outline of who those key individuals are. So the covenant of grace is established in the first place with Adam. And if you put it in an adjectival form, as we've been talking about, it would be the Adamic covenant. And then we can see the covenant a little bit more clearly and perhaps a little bit more uh, familiar to us, the covenant that is made with Noah or the Noahic covenant. And we're familiar, for example, with the sign of that covenant that is made. The sign of the covenant that is made with Noah is, of course, the rainbow. As we continue on then in the book of Genesis, we see that the covenant is made with Abraham. Genesis 12, 15, 17, describe the making of the covenant with Abraham and the promises that are given to him. The covenant is then further made with Moses and with the people through these representatives, so with, with each one of the men that I've talked about, it is made with them and then with, by them to the people as well. And then, of course, uh, in a little while, just a few minutes, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper together, and you know the words of institution that Jesus gave uh, when he gave the cup. 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of these figures were mediators, were covenant mediators, those through whom the covenant of grace was administered and mediated to the people of God. And then there is the Davidic covenant as well. Historically speaking then, that of course fits between Moses and Christ. Moses and the new covenant is where we find the Davidic covenant and where we have our text today. Now, it's important to understand at least what is the heart of this covenant. What's the essence of it? And you can find it by way of a motto, by way of a phrase that is carried throughout Scripture that describes what a covenant is. I could have chosen a number of places, um, but I want to give you two just to illustrate this covenant motto, this covenant principle. Look at the front of your bulletin with me. There I've placed uh, a passage from Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 37. And just to show you, Ezekiel several hundred years after this thing in 2 Samuel chapter 7, several hundred years after both David and his son has died. So just the top of it there, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. That gives you the context. We're talking about David, but it's been hundreds of years since David lived at this point. Now, let me pick it up in the middle. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. And then here's this verse, this phrase that is this covenant motto, the heart of the covenant. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Three parts to it. I will be their God. They will be my people, and I will dwell in their midst. That's the promise. That is the heart of what God says he is going to accomplish. Gather up a people for himself. They are his. He is theirs, and he will dwell with that people. Now, just to hear this again, I closed a sermon uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, with Revelation chapter 21. But listen to this same thing said at the very end of the Bible. And I heard a loud, this is Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. One of the ways you can try and figure out, are you on track with your interpretation? Are you on track with what the Bible is saying? Is you can go to the end. You can go to the end and say, okay, that's where it ends. Is that where we're heading here? And that is the ending. This threefold promise from God, this threefold covenantal promise from God. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Each covenantal stage, each covenantal epoch is an advancement, an expansion, an intensification of that promise. The promise remains consistent. All the way through, the promise remains consistent, but it becomes more intense and it becomes more expansive as we move along. All right, now we can come back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 a little bit with that as a background. Now, I don't know if you've got your Bibles open. I've got my Bible open here to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the heading at the top of your Bible, or at the top of the chapter, excuse me, in mine at least, says, the Lord's covenant with David. I don't know if it says that in yours, but that's what it says in mind, the Lord's covenant with David. However, 
If you were reading along with me, or if you listened particularly carefully and closely when I was reading, you never heard the word covenant mentioned in what I was reading for us. Not to worry. This is that. This is that. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is this covenant being made with David. There are other places where the word isn't used, but this is exactly what is taking place. Now, I feel the need to affirm that and confirm that with Scripture itself. And so, while there are many places that we could turn to, to see that this is in fact the Davidic covenant that is being made here, I want to turn to two for us. The first of these is in Psalm 89. Psalm 89 was the psalm with which we opened our worship today. It was the call to worship today. And listen again now to verses 3 and 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. Okay, so God has covenanted with David. What's the substance of the covenant? I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Okay, that's, that's what was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, right? So this is that. This is the covenant that we're talking about in this particular section. And let me read two more verses, or I'm going to read four more actually. Two more verses to start. Verses 28 and 29 of Psalm 89. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. Right? Now that's what was promised in this section of scripture that we read as well, right? I will not take my steadfast love away from him as I took it away from Saul. I will keep my steadfast love. So, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. And then one more section within that same psalm, verse 34. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn in my, by my holiness, I will not lie to David. There's an inviolability of this covenant. It will take place. God says, I've sworn it, and I've sworn it based on David? No. Based on my holiness, based on my steadfast love, I have sworn this to David. One other passage, again, just to, to emphasize what we're talking about here. Jeremiah 33, 19. Also hundreds of years after 2 Samuel 7. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time. So this is a, this is a comparison being made here, that God's covenanted with the seasons, with the earth, to have day and night as part of the cycle of the earth, part of the cycle of humanity. And the point being here, you can't break those. You can't break the covenant with day and with the covenant of night. And then it continues on. Then also, if you could break those things, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. Point. You can't break my covenant with day and night. You can't break my covenant with David. There will be a son of David to reign on the throne. That is my covenant that I have made with David. 
2 Samuel 7, then, is the establishment of the Davidic covenant. And this covenant does not stand alone. It is not isolated. It's not some kind of one-off event. It's not some kind of thing where you go, didn't see that coming. Don't, don't know about that. Haven't seen anything like that before in Scripture. It is squarely in the midst of the marvelous work of our covenant God. And it's going to take us right up to Jesus himself. So, again, to look at the text. David has what seems to be a noble impulse. I live in a nice house. We saw that house being established, that house being built back in chapter 5. And, and some of these chapters are not all sequential. Some of them are thematic in their organization. I live in a nice house, but the ark, and he just kind of leaves it hanging out there. It's, it's a tent, the ark. And Nathan, this is the first time we've been introduced to Nathan the prophet, confirms the impulse. Right? Go, oh, David, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. That's a principle that's in David's life. Call it the Emmanuel principle. God is with us. Go. Do all that is in your heart. House then here. House, uh, you know, trying to understand the terminology. House here is initially very simple. It's something other than a tent. Something where you can live in, dwell in, put something in, four walls, a roof to it, where you can put in and you can have as a particular place. So David's house is palatial, right? It was, a, it was a palace that David lived in. It was nice enough that it made the ark living in a tent or dwelling in a tent look kind of shabby in comparison. And so this idea is born. Now, of course, if you build a house for the ark, that's going to have another name for it as well. At that point, a house becomes a temple. And so a house isn't just a house, a house becomes a temple if you're housing the ark of the covenant of God in that place. God, however, has what is perhaps a surprising response to it. A kind of, a, and I don't, mean, I don't mean to cheapen this in any way, but I, I, I mean to try to understand the text. A kind of, David, thank you so much for your thoughtfulness. Appreciate you thinking of that, but not you and not yet. Not you and not yet. And you can't help but ask the question, why? Everything seems right. Everything is poised. David has everything else that is there. David is the king. He's the king over the United Kingdom, and he's the king who's taken Jerusalem, and he's already brought the ark in in this great celebratory time of worship. He's the man after God's own heart. Who else would you want to build a house for the name of the Lord? What else is the next step to take? This is the next step to take, and he is, apparently, one would think, the guy to do it. Why then? I think the text itself gives us some answers to the question of why not David, why not Yet, verse 5, the Lord speaks to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Now I'm going to read this with, I think, the intended emphasis that is here. Would you build me a house to dwell in? You build for me a house to dwell. Now in one sense you can look at this and say, 
You, the, the heavens, the heavens and the earth are not enough to contain God. You'd build me a house to dwell in, but that's probably not the emphasis quite yet in this text. David will pray exactly that, or Solomon will pray exactly that uh, in the time of the dedication of the temple itself. But the emphasis here is, you build for me? Are you sure about that, David? You sure you got the, the order of this straight? You're going to do this for me because I need this from you. Verse 6. I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling, in all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel. The emphasis here seems to be God saying, listen, I am united with the people. The people have been living in tents. I have been living in tents with the people, sacramentally speaking, the sacramental presence of God in the ark and in the tent. And God says, I'm good being with my people. Verse 7, though, really gets to the point. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Here's the question to David. David, David, have you ever heard me say, build a house for me? Have you ever heard that command come from me? H have you ever heard that direction? Has anybody, anybody who preceded you in being the defender of my people whom I appointed, has anybody ever heard that command from me? No. No. Here's what's happening. David, in this home-building impulse, seems to have gotten out over his skis. It is, after all, pretty heady stuff. Hey, God has used him. He is the one who has, in fact, defeated the Philistines, defeated the Jebusites, defeated all of these other people as well. He is the commander who's been pretty successful along the way, pretty respectful of Saul and the household of Saul. He's the one who is now the king over the United Kingdom. He is the one who has brought the people into Jerusalem and made this the capital, if you will, of this now united kingdom. He's the one who's living in a great palace. And David's chest started to swell just a little bit with all that. Just a little bit. And he thought to himself, you know what? I should do something for God. I should do something for God. An impulse that isn't always wrong, but is apparently here in this time. Verses 8 through 11 are God's reorientation words for David. Reorientation words, verses 8 through 11. Listen to them. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. 
the I, I emphasize the I in the way that I read the passage initially for us. God is about to say, David, David, I know you are the one that I used for all of these things. But David, I did them. You were nothing. You were the youngest of the household of Jesse. You were out in the fields. He doesn't even say you were shepherding the sheep. He says you were just following the sheep. You were just following after the sheep. I took you. I took you from that place and made you prince over, and here's where it starts to get buzzwords, over my people. And, and that's a covenantal buzzword that goes off right there. Over my people, what, what are the promises of the covenant? I will be your God, you will be my people. That's Mosaic covenant language. You are my people, and it gets attention. When God says, David, 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 they're not your people, they're my people. My people are the ones who are here. Verse 9, And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make your name, make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will make your name great. You will not make my name great. I make your name great. Now, that's odd to us. It just sounds weird to us. Now, most of you, or at least some of you, know where this language comes from. This language comes from not Moses, but from Abraham, taking us back further in Scripture. This is the promise that God made to Abraham. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Buzz. David hears, wait, the Lord says, I will make your name great. Same promise as back in Genesis chapter 12. And you have to remember the context of that, con of that promise that God makes there, or you, or you can flub it up very easily. What was in Genesis chapter 11? In Genesis chapter 11, we had the Tower of Babel. It was a home-building project. Hey, it, was a, it was a big project to build this grand place, this grand central place from which the people of God would not be scattered. Let's build, is what they said. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And what's their motivation behind it? We will make a name for ourselves. Right? That's Genesis 11. We will make a name for ourselves. God says to Abram, no, 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 no. That's not the way this works. It's not about you making a name for yourself. It's about me making a name for you. David, this is not the way this works. This grand building project that you're thinking of, there's some nobility to it, but there's also probably in there, in there inside of you, David, some level of pride that you'd say, I'm the one who made this house for God. No, David, I will make your name Great. Verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Buzz, covenant language once again. Exodus chapter 15, this is the song of Moses after they crossed over the Red Sea and the Egyptian army had been destroyed. These are the last two verses of the song of Moses. Here they are. You, speaking Moses to the Lord, 
you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. What mountain? Jerusalem. Zion. You'll bring them into this place. You, God, will bring them into this place. You will plant them on that mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. Your abode, the place where you are dwelling, the place where you are living. The sanctuary, O Lord, which, and here's the kicker, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Your hands establish it. Not David's hands establish it. Your hands establish it. Last verse of that song of Moses. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord will reign forever and ever. There's a king over the king. Verse 11, and then after war the warnings about the enemies, and the, or the Lord saying that I will give rest for all of those, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. We entered into this with David saying, I will make you a house. We end it, we exit with God saying, no, 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 I make you a house. That's the way this goes. That's the order. God, in his steadfast love and faithfulness, is confronting David with the age-old problem that dwells in all of us. We think too much about ourselves. We think too highly of ourselves. We are too self-centric in the way that we view the world, and it is true for every single one of us. We think of ourselves as captains of our own fate, as drivers of our own destiny, as makers of our own homes, of builders of our own careers, as providers of our daily bread, as raisers of our children. We think of ourselves as the homemakers but God says that is all in the first place from me. It's all from me. I'm the source. I'm the one who has done all this. Have I used you in it? Sure. But I'm the one who is behind all of it. We are prone to be prideful. We are prone to take credit. God says to David, no, my friend. No, my child. No. Leave the house building to me. I've got this one. I'll build the house. Grace comes from me to you. Favor comes from me to you. Not the other way around. And David gets it. He gets it. Verse 18. How do you respond to that? Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? Who am I? Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house? Got it? He's gotten to the point. Bingo, that's it, David. That's where I want you. I want you at the place, not where you're going, hey, I'm, I've done a lot of good things for God. I've, you know, all the enemies are quiet. I guess I'll go God a house. No, no, no. That's not where God wants him. God wants him at the point saying, who am I? 
I'm nobody before you. I'm nobody before you. I'm utterly and completely dependent on you and all that you have given to it. That's it. That's it. A broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. A heart overwhelmed by the graciousness of God. That's it. That's what I want, says the Lord. The Davidic covenant is a heart centric covenant. Not that other ones weren't, not that the heart was somehow irrelevant in any of the other covenantal administrations, that's not the point. The point is that as God draws nearer and finally to the coming of the person of Christ, he draws closer to the heart. It is the heart that is involved in this. And because God is drawing near, it's the heart that's going to be examined and uncovered over and over again. That's why in the Davidic covenant, you have all of the writings and all of the poetry and all of the psalter that is there. It is a heart-centric covenant. Now, God, of course, isn't done. With David now in the right place, God piles on the promises. God just piles them on. Just take this one. And you know what? You know what? Take this as well. And, and this is on top of you as well. And try and process this that I'm going to give to you. There'll be a son in your house. There are already a lot of sons in David's house. Frankly, there are a lot of sons in David's house that are going to cause a lot of problems in the days to come. That son who's going to come will build me a house. Now, house is getting used in different ways all of a sudden. There's going to be a son in your house. Helps us to see that which is clear scripturally, and we all know it. That a house isn't just about a temple and a house isn't just about physicality. That a house is a household. And so you're talking about a family that is there. And God says in this family there's going to be one defining quality. One defining characteristic. And it's a characteristic that's not necessarily going to be found in you. But it's going to be found in me. And it will ultimately be in the son who comes forth from you. And the one characteristic is steadfast love and faithfulness. That's it. That's the quality that is going to characterize this family. I will not take that away from you. I will not take it away from my son. That is the way that this household will be built. It is the foundation on which this household will be built. My steadfast love and faithfulness, I put it right there. And it rests on that. The idea then is expanded because David, it's, God says to David, I will establish the throne. And the idea of house is then expanded even more when you get to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Kingdom and house are then linked and will be established forever. Now David knows, like any of us know, it doesn't matter what you build in this world. Eventually it falls apart. Eventually it decays. No matter how good your build is. But God says, no, no, no. No. The house that I'm building, the house that I'm building will endure, will be established forever. And the house, David, is a kingdom. With your son as king over it. Now we'll talk more 
<laughs> it's hard for me to leave off the promised heir, but we're going to talk more about that next week. But can we just say a bit now that when we come to the New Testament and we hear that Joseph is of the house of David and that a son will be given to his betrothed who will sit on the throne of David over the house of Jacob, and when Zechariah sings that God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, we go, wait, this is that. This is that. This is where that comes from. That flows out of this passage right here, out of these promises right here. All of those texts that we love so much and we know them so well because they're said so often to us at Christmas time, they all flow out of this covenant with David, these promises with respect to a house. Now, I know I've got to bring this thing in and, and land it, but I cannot resist giving one last perspective on the house from the writer of Hebrews. At the risk of muddling, I want to do it. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 is going to talk about the significance of the house. He's going to talk about the significance of the house from the perspective of Moses. Okay? From Moses. But you could just substitute, just as easily substitute David in for Moses as well. So here, what he says. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So consider Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Continuing. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. It's his house. He's the builder of that house. He's the host of that house. And he's faithful over that house as a son. You know the next verse or the next line? And we are his house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. You are heirs to the house that Jesus built. Jesus said, I will build my church. I'll build it. I will build my house. I will prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many, many rooms, many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus is the son over the house that is promised right here. He's the one who reigns on the throne of David. Over the house as a son. And says, you know what? Come on in. I have a place for you in this house. There's room for you in my house. Come on in to your forever home. My house is your 
forever home. You are the household of the living God, to which, may I suggest, the only proper response that you can make is, who am I? Who am I? What's my house? Who am I that I should be able to be in the household of God? Lord God, thank you for the promises. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word fulfilled in your son Jesus, the builder of the house, the eternal king who sits on the throne, in whose name we pray. Amen.